And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Our episode today comes from contributor Alice Fordham. She's a radio producer and journalist who used to live in Beirut, Baghdad, and tons of other places, between Cairo, Tunis, Sana'a, you name it. And after nine years in the Middle East, Alice went to Mexico. And this is where this story begins. I had just quit my job as an NPR correspondent covering Syria and Iraq. I felt guilty for walking away from wars so many people were stuck in. And I couldn't quite believe I was leaving the Arab world, which I had lived in for years and which I love. But I was exhausted and unwell and I couldn't do the job anymore. When some friends suggested I visit with them in Mexico City, I gladly accepted. I came for a week and I stayed the summer. And part of why I was happy was that it was so different there. The language, the food, the music, the weather. I'd never been to Latin America before, and it was refreshing to be immersed in somewhere totally new. Occasionally, though, I would have little unexpected twinges of recognition. On a weekend trip with some friends, we were touristing around and admiring painted plates for sale. And I looked at these rich jewel colors and symmetrical patterns and little fluttering bird designs and I thought wow they look so familiar and then we'd be having lunch on a beautiful patio and I think you know I feel like I've seen this before where were these moments almost like flashbacks coming from that's our story today an unexpected not so coincidental discovery of why so many of us like Alice feel a little bit more at home in places like Latin America, Mexico, than we might have expected. I'm Dana Balut, and this is Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa, and the spaces in between. Alice takes it from here. The first place I found answers was Spain. After my Mexico trip, I dropped my plans to study for a master's degree and headed to Granada for beginner Spanish. This was a bad decision in some ways, as it was very hot and the language schools were full of teenagers distracted by sangria and nightclubs. But it turned out to be a pretty good place if I was unconsciously seeking to solve the mystery of why the lovely streets of Mexico City felt familiar. Was it in the architecture, the view? My first aha moment came in the city of Seville, where flamenco grew up in the old industrial neighbourhoods. And that industry was pottery, made from the rich clay pulled from the banks of the river. Wandering around the area, I went to the Ceramics Museum and it fell into place. What Mexico and southern Spain and Arab North Africa share is the tiles. But finding out exactly why and how took me back centuries. Once I started looking, the tiles told the story of the rise and fall of dynasties and of how even defeated people have a way of enduring through the beautiful things they leave behind. I started with Professor Rafael Lopez Guzman, the director of the History of Art in the University of Granada. Es el sur de España, es lo último que se conquista a lo que son los estados musulmanes, islámicos. 
He laid out for me how southern Spain was the last place conquered by Arabs. The region known as Andalusia was an Arab Islamic territory for centuries, so its graceful style echoed the painted ceramics that came from the Arabian Peninsula and the Levant, influenced in turn by Asia and Persia. Y claro, cuando se va conquistando las tierras del sur de España, aunque eh, muchos musulmanes se quedaron. The empire didn't last forever, as it goes. After a series of wars and treaties between the Arabs, also known as the Moors, and the Catholic royals who held the rest of Spain, the Catholics took control of the region. Many Muslim Moors stayed, nominally converting to Christianity. Others were kicked out, along with the Jewish population. But the heritage remained. Lo que sí queda es un rico patrimonio urbano. He says in the cities of the region, the style of ceramics and architecture remained, no matter whether there were Christians, Muslims or Jews making them. Professor Lopez says at that time, the Islamic culture was something that was part of Hispanic society. We can't differentiate between the elements that came from the Muslim or Christian world, and he calls it cultural hybridization. Every style just belonged to that cultural moment. So that's Spain. And the story of how this cultural hybrid came to Mexico brings us to a familiar figure, Christopher Columbus. The Catholic conquest of southern Spain happened right before 1492, which is when the royals sponsored Columbus to sail west and try to find a passage to India. Instead, he landed on the American continent, the first step of Spain conquering most of the continent, a process which sowed death and destruction and changed life there forever. And once I put all these bits together, it made perfect sense that Mexico's colonial buildings were adorned with arabesque tiles. In fact, the city of Seville, where the riverbanks are thick with clay, was where most of the tiles and pots were made. No solamente se vuelve un centro acaudalado, Sevilla se convierte en la capital económica de Europa. And that trade was part of what made it the richest city in Europe. So that filled in my gaps a bit. There had been an Arab Muslim dynasty in southern Spain, which was defeated by Catholic royalty. But the Muslim artisans and traditions remained, and their style ended up in Latin America, because one big plus of having an empire is that it gives you a market to buy all your stuff. And I'm not the only one who had this sense of familiarity, tie between the two worlds that I felt before I understood. And there's a lot more to it than just the tiles. My name is Molly Crabapple. I'm an artist and writer in New York City. Uh, my father is Puerto Rican and he's a Puerto Rican studies scholar. So the Caribbean island of Puerto Rico was one of the first territories Christopher Columbus landed on in 1493. It was swiftly colonized by the Spanish and a fortress was built to ward off jealous European rivals. Old San Juan is the Spanish part of uh, the capital, San Juan. It's sort of these pastel fruit and candy colored houses with ornate white molding all over them. It's uh, surrounded by a wall, uh, El Morro, that, that keeps it from the ocean. And it's very much you know, the touristy, touristy part of, of San Juan. Um, but it's also ravishingly beautiful and probably one of the best 
preserved parts of the island. Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory now. A little while ago, Molly was working there in the wake of the devastating Hurricane Maria. I would take these morning walks in old San Juan when I didn't have interviews that I was doing when I wasn't doing, you know, reporting or a project. I would just sort of wander around, go to cafes. And then my eye caught on this facade of a closed French restaurant. And what struck me was that not only did it have kind of arabesque tile work, which is pretty normal, you know, Arabs uh, had a presence in Spain for 800 years and they deeply influenced the whole aesthetic there, but it also had Arabic script on the tiles. Molly has pretty good Arabic. She's studied it since her teens, done amazing work on Syria, among other places. And I looked at it closely, and it was the motto of the Nasrid dynasty, the last Arab dynasty in Spain that Isabella and Ferdinand expelled from Granada, which is, in English, there is no victor but God. And I was so struck by this, this poetic motto copied from a long defeated and displaced dynasty that had then been imported to an island where people couldn't read it. The people who imported it had also been kicked out. And there it was. There is no victor but God, just on the wall of this closed up French restaurant on this island that had been decimated by the hurricane, had been decimated by austerity, while all of these tourists walked by and none of them even knew what it was. It was just, you know, probably just squiggles to them unless they even recognized it as Arabic. It's almost like the way she sees it, this beautiful little architectural fragment was like a message in a bottle, a final remnant of the Nasserid Empire, which was defeated by the Catholics in Spain, which ended up on this island where the Spanish were eventually defeated by the Americans who took the territory. It didn't just like show that these things are connected because, yeah, obviously they're connected. It was also a lesson on how things pass and how things fade, how something that was the motto of a ruling dynasty that had a glittering kingdom, a kingdom that represented possibly one of the most gorgeous, if, if decadent, you know, eras in the Arab world in Spain, this motto could persist and it could last even long after that kingdom was destroyed, even after the kingdom that destroyed it was destroyed, even after the American empire that kicked out that kingdom is on its last legs. And still this motto, this phrase, still it exists, even if no one can even read it. And I was thinking like, is that what winning looks like in this world, in this world where everything is mortal, where everything passes, where everything changes? Is it that something that you made persists and is carried on even to totally alien contexts, even to be viewed by people who don't know what it means? So the remnant of Arabic text was what endured of all that rich past, a tiny triumph in its endurance. And I guess at first glance, it looks like a slender victory indeed, because on the whole, Arabic culture and people were stripped from Spain systematically and brutally. Not only were the Moors conquered, they became enemies of the state. Puerto Rico, parts of which look for all the world like Morocco, actually became a cauldron for a simmering Spanish paranoia about the threat of Islam. Because although they wished they were a Catholic country and that was the end of it, 
it was never really as simple as that. The reality is that Islam arrived to Puerto Rico and the rest of the Caribbean as soon as Columbus arrived, um, which is to say in, you know, in 1492. This is Mauro Pabon, studying for a PhD in comparative literature at Yale. Um, and I have a long-standing um, interest in Islamic cultures and specifically the Arabic language. I'm from San Juan, Puerto Rico. I grew up there. I, my family's, my entire family's there. And she told me that Islam arrived in the 1400s in waves. The first wave that Islam arrived was uh, with converted Muslims that were among his crew, you know, the so-called Ladinos who had been forced to uh, convert to Christianity but remained attached to their faith. And the second wave was through enslaved Africans who were brought in afterwards once it became clear that the native population wouldn't be large enough to, you know, to carry out the work that the colonists were trying to do um, in these spaces. So I have a, a lot of Spanish professors in, in my family, in my immediate family, and you know, family friends, and they would always, you know, be quick to point out, well, you know, this is a word that comes from, from Arabic. Uh, and I would always be, I remember collecting them as a child, words like algarabia, which um, funnily enough has, has a um, an origin that is tied precisely to the uh, repression of Muslim communities in Spain who spoke Arabic, right? That word algarabia, which now means nonsense or noise, um, is actually a sort of, yeah, like funny, just like twisting of the word al-Arabia or the Arabic. And so I was aware of funny sort of linguistic tidbits like that. And it was this kind of deep antipathy to Islam that was taking root at the beginning of the 16th century. Uh, they, they were really fearful because of, you know, these, these long centuries of Islamic conquest. The Caribbean would become this, this uh, theater of war, this sort of pl- prolonged theater of war with Islam. The Spanish crown was highly, highly paranoid. They feared, right, this sort of kind of return of Islamic political power to such a degree that even in 1492, you see the beginning of this very willful conflation between Muslim and and rebel that only really gets sort of exacerbated um, as the 15th century goes on and you start seeing the first slave revolts, right? So quite notably, in the 16th century, there were a couple of significant slave revolts starting in 1503, then in 1522, and leading to one in Puerto Rico, actually, in 1527. Um, And in all of these cases, the troublemakers, right, um, the instigators, were identified as Muslim elements in these communities. Um, The rebellion was associated with people not rebelling because they were enslaved, but because they were Muslims. They did seemingly instigate some very bloody and very powerful early revolts that led to the crown to double down immediately on these edicts barring specifically Muslims from entering the New World. If that reminds you of anything, you're not the only one. People have lately referred to it as the original Muslim ban. And and so, for example, in, in 1522, after the Santo Domingo revolt and after the authorities had concluded that it had been waged by, you know, these Muslim influences um, and like disgruntled um, Ladinos as well, um, they issued new decrees in 1530 and 1532 um, to ban the importation of enslaved Moors, Jews and Ladinos into the New World. Um, and that Muslim ban worked. Islam effectively died out in the New World. So it was very hard for the religion to grow, especially after the abolition of the slave trade. And it was especially hard because it had to 
people had to continue to practice it in, in secret. And so there was no way to attract people to it. There was no way really to compel people to convert. And so after the 19th century, it seems to have effectively died out. But, then but was... it had not gone forever. We'll be right back. The legacy of Spanish efforts to erase Islam in South America is enduring. Kamal Delgado is a young human rights activist who's back home in Puerto Rico these days, but who converted to Islam when he was studying in the U.S. It is hard for me to fit being Puerto Rican and Muslim at the same time. And people always like, wait, but one is your religion, the other is your, your ethnicity, your nationality. I'm like, yeah, but my ethnicity and nationality comes with cultural practices and a cultural behavior that I have to uphold to be normal in my culture. He says his conversion involved unlearning a lot of things he learned in school. We were just taught that these aggressive, crazy, savages... Moorish people invaded Spain, but then the Christians and God and Jesus descended upon them and they willed on the Christians' favor and slaughtered them. And they were expulsed with the Jews and the Muslims out of Spain. And he learned this even as he grew up with some Arab Christian relatives. So the environment I grew up in, in terms of religion, was I'm not going to lie. It was a very interesting one. Um, I grew up in a very religious um, family. Um, I grew up with a single mother, so I was mainly with my mother's side of the family. And they were Protestant, um, Methodist, and Pentecostal. My grandma, um, she's of Palestinian um, descent. And my grandpa, he is Puerto Rican. So she came here to Puerto Rico around, I guess, the 40s, 40-something, I guess, when Al-Nakba happened in Palestine. Then, yeah, basically Puerto Rican-Palestinian on that side and um, Puerto Rican and Spaniard on my mom's side. But both sides agreed that Muslims were very bad news. I was always taught that these are... Um, these are very dangerous people. They have very radical views. Um, But then he was in Chicago, a little lonely in this cold city far from his tropical home. And one day in Starbucks, he started chatting to a Turkish student, Anas, about Islam. I was in Starbucks. And interestingly, I questioned the kindness. I'm like, why are you so kind to everyone? Because I've, I know I've seen him before. He was working on, in college and everything. And it was somewhat something that like didn't bother me, but it sparked somewhat of, of a curiosity. I was like, why is this person doing this? Turns out this guy Anas knew some things Kamal didn't. So right in this conversation, we started to have a... I started to have a realization. <laughs> he, he continued to tell me that I had Muslim heritage. And I'm like, no. I'm like, in somewhat of a way, I was like arrogant about it. I'm like, no, I know I'm Spanish. And I knew I know I do. I, ha- I have an Arab heritage. Yes, but not Muslim. So in somewhat of a way, I was kind of... Not truly, um, how do you call this? 
convinced. I wasn't truly convinced, but yet it was still intriguing because he continued to talk about um, Muslim Spain and about the cultural richness that this this country had at its time where science and where knowledge was flourishing. So as as a boy who grew up in Puerto Rico, um, this is a topic that has never been taught in school. Usually some teachers in college, um, they teach topics like these, but it's not even investigated. For me, it was, it did in a way bring I guess in a an identity crisis because I was it left me wondering like hey um we were lied to from the beginning from our real heritage so yeah it it was it was shocking news for me after he converted he weathered some pretty strong reaction from his family yeah, I spoke with my family. I was trying to explain to my mother's side of the family about the Puerto Rican heritage and how it it has a big connection, especially in my family. Um, and let's put it this way. The reaction wasn't very good. Her reaction was... It was of a feeling that she does not want... She doesn't want her faith to be disturbed. So she thinks that what I could tell her might disturb her and confuse her. So she would prefer to me not to say it. So my family's response to it was, it was a, it was a very, very hard response. Um, immediately, without hesitation, the moment they saw that I had a Quran, that was the exact same day that they decided to shun me. The same day, without hesitation. For them, my decision to embrace Islam was technically erasing my name from the Book of Life. It was an equivalent to that. So basically they kicked me out. Um, it was actually around like 2 a.m. And uh, I had to wait outside. It was actually snowing. I was already in Chicago. He lived with a Palestinian family in Chicago for months. Then, when he finished his studies, moved back to Puerto Rico. And when he went home to San Juan, the city itself seemed to speak to his new faith. When I came back to Puerto Rico, I saw everything was different. It was like I had a new pair of sunglasses. I looked at the old city and I would see the resemblance of, of Morocco. I would look at certain cities and look at their buildings and the architecture, the colonial architecture, and I would be like, wow, this was made by descendants of Muslims or Muslims themselves. For me, it was, it was amazing, the fact that he noticed street names similar to Arabic words and wondered about connections between Arabic dishes like kippe and similar Puerto Rican ones. And he started trying to fill in the holes in his friend's education, taking them to some of the Moorish-style buildings on the island. 
A great example is my roommate. When I showed him for the first time, I took him directly to the building and I said, do you see this right here? It's like, this is Arabic. He's like, what? He's like, this is Arabic. You know what it says? And I translated to him and his reaction was like, but how can this be in Puerto Rico? Like, bro, how can this be in Puerto Rico? We're from Spain. I'm like, because Spain was Muslim at some point. They just tried to eliminate a couple of hundreds of years of history, but it's kind of hard to eliminate. It's, we have a phrase here in Puerto Rico that every criminal leaves their evidence. So this is the evidence that criminals left behind. This is the, the little evidence we can find to prove and confirm a cultural background that in a way has been taught as a myth. Five hundred years later, Kamal is using those tiles to inspire a Muslim faith that he calls a reversion rather than a conversion. Like Kamal and like Molly, I like this idea of a legacy enduring against the odds. And for me personally, I found it remarkable there was so much Arab and Islamic heritage hiding in plain sight in Latin America and that it can tell us so much. I discovered it when I was trying to leave the Middle East behind and some of myself with it. I wanted to immerse myself in somewhere new as a way of moving on from years of conflict and of conflicted feelings about the work I was doing. But the world was more connected than I'd realized. Those links are there and they're strong. And I noticed them because I brought to this new place all the memories of the old one. I realize now I'll never see anything except through the prism of all the things I've seen before. And I can't leave any of myself behind anywhere. I carry it all with me. I'm lucky to have it. This episode was produced by Alice Fordham and edited by me, Dana Balutz, with editorial support from Alex Atek. Sound design and mixing by Mohamed Khreizat and Bella Brahim is our marketing director. Special thanks to Rafael Lopez-Guzman, Molly Crabapple, Maru Pabon and Kamal Delgado for speaking to us for this episode. And to theologian Ken Chitwood, who explained so much about Islam and Puerto Rico to me and who introduced me to Kamal. I recommend checking out his work. Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network, which means we have lots more shows in Arabic and in English. Search Kerning Cultures Network wherever you get your podcasts or go to kerningcultures.com to hear more. And that's kerning with a K. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>